Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11. Deuteronomy, chapter 11. And this morning we are going to be finishing this chapter out, looking at verses 26 through 32. Deuteronomy 11, starting at verse 26 through 32. I just want to start this morning. This is not in my introduction at all, but I just want to tell you all how glad I am to see you this morning. It is a true blessing to get to stand here with you and worship our God. And I'm thankful for his faithfulness. And if you haven't caught that theme yet, that is what this Sunday's focus is on. It's on the faithfulness of God in every situation and in every time. We're here this morning kind of standing at the crossroads between the end of an old year, the beginning of a new year. And this one is kind of special, though. I realized earlier this week as I was preparing for this message that I get the rare privilege of preaching not only on the first day of 2023, but also the last day of 2023. That's, that has never happened to me before, and it will be a while before that happens again, so I don't want to waste it. <clears throat> and I don't expect any of you to remember what I preached on on January 1st of this year. But as I was looking back through my notes, I, I remember saying something to you about how 2023 was a mystery to us. We didn't know what it held for us, but we knew and we could trust it was not a mystery to God. And here at the end of 2023, I think we can all say this year has had some significant challenges. Now, some of you have endured some especially hard things this year. Some of you are still dealing with those things even now. And maybe you're wondering if 2024 is going to be different, if it's going to have any relief for you. Now, for others of you, 2023 has been a great year, maybe the best year you've ever had. We have gotten to celebrate weddings, babies, baptisms, retirement, and lots of other wonderful things together as a church. One thing has proved true over the past year, in joy and in sorrow, and that is that the Lord is faithful. This year has been a year full of God's grace. We have seen God redeem difficult situations this year. We have seen him answer our prayers. In the chaos and the confusion, God continues to be our rock and our redeemer, and I assure you he will continue to be in the year to come. Now, I want to close this year out with you by thinking about God and his faithfulness to us. If there's anything that should bring us peace about the year to come, it's this. And I think that Moses gives us a unique opportunity here in Deuteronomy 11 to consider just that, to, to think about specifically how God would call us to respond to that faithfulness with a faithfulness of our own. More than that, I think this passage gives us an opportunity to consider how God has graciously provided that faithfulness for us through the obedient work of his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we come to the end of this section of Deuteronomy, I want us to see what God rightly expects from us. I want us to see how this standard of obedience is timeless, and I want to finish by looking at the way that God has triumphed over our inability to meet that standard in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to summarize this all together, it is God's faithfulness to us as expressed to us in the story of the gospel. Now, 
If you would, please stand with me as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 11. We'll be starting again in verse 26 and reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond... Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Morah? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the message of this text is pretty clear to see. Moses is here carefully charging the people of Israel to dedicate themselves to God, to live in the commandments of his covenant with them. Moses is charging Israel to be a faithful covenant partner with the Lord, to be a reflection of his own faithfulness to them. The key moment of this passage, which is really going to dominate most of our time this morning, is here at the beginning, where Moses holds out a blessing and a curse to the people with a very clear message, that there is a blessing for the people if they keep the covenant, and there is a curse for them if they break it. Now, this is a significant moment in the book of Deuteronomy itself because we are at the jumping, this is going to be the jumping off moment for Moses to go from introducing the law to actually talking about the law itself. And just so you know, uh, next week we're actually going to be taking, we're going to be pressing the pause button on Deuteronomy. We're going to go back to Acts. We're going to finish the book of Acts. We'll be back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 next fall. So this is kind of a, it just is a good moment for us to take our leave and come back to it next year. But um, it's in the structure of the text itself. This is kind of that moment after, at the next breath out of Moses' mouth, or coming that Moses takes to, to talk to us, is going to be to talk about the actual instructions of the law. So we're going to put the pause button there, but today we're going to think about the law and its purpose, especially in the covenant that God had with Israel. This section is actually forming a sort of bookend for the law that makes sure that we understand God's expectations of the people in regards to it. And the thing that I, I think I appreciate the most about this section is the way that it helps us to consider the purpose of the law within the scope of God's greater work of redemption. To truly understand the commands that Moses is about to lay out, we must consider them within the context of God's covenant with Israel. Every covenant contains promises and expectations accompanied with certain consequences for whichever party would break those promises, but also with blessings for the one who keeps them. God's covenant with Israel is no exception to this rule. And it's important that next year when we start to look at the specific commands of the law, we consider them within the context of this relationship that God had with Israel, how he gave himself to them to be 
a covenant partner with them, to, to be their God and had set them apart to be his holy people. So as we think about that relationship, we can see that there is an expectation of faithfulness here. That's the, really the main idea that I want to unpack with you this morning, because within this expectation of faithfulness, we also find the promise of God's work of redemption through Jesus, who is the faithful covenant partner that we need. So the main idea that I want you to get from this passage, if you get nothing else, get this. Understand that the key to faithfulness for us lies in the faithfulness of God to us. Our faithfulness to God, the secret, the key to that, lies within the faithfulness of God to us. Now, I have four points for you this morning. Don't let that scare you. I actually have less notes than I usually do. But uh, what I want to do in those four points is to unpack, first, God's standard of obedience— I want to show you the problem that that poses to us because of our sinful nature. And I also want to show you how God has made a way to secure that for us and how that work that he has done for us is meant to impact us and equip us to live in faithfulness to him. So let's begin by looking at God's standard of obedience. The first point I have for you this morning is understand this, that obedience to God isn't optional. It's not optional. There's a mistake that I think people make when they talk about God. They talk as if his rule, his sovereign rule, is something that is optional. They say things like, I could never believe in a God that would do this or that, or who would allow this to happen or that to happen. I hear people make demands of God, crying out to him and saying, meet me here or else, as if that's a threat. God does not have to meet us on our own terms, and he does not conform himself to our expectations for him. I think as people talk about God that way, they forget that he is God and they are not, and he is God because that is who he is. People forget that the brokenness of the world is a direct result of human sin and evil, And they fail to consider that God is the one who is at work in the world, despite that sin, to redeem sinners from it. The Bible starts by telling us about how God created the world. And it does that not just to just give us an idea or an understanding of how things came to be, although it does that. But more importantly, the reason the Bible starts there with creation is to establish for us that God has rightful authority and perfect sovereignty over his creation. God is God, and we are not. We exist because it pleased God to make us. We live because he sustains us. And so we are, account- we are accountable to God because he is our creator and we are his creation. As our creator, God also gives us our purpose. He made us in his image to be a reflection of his glory, to participate in his creation as stewards of it, to take a creative role in it. And more fundamentally, he made us to know him and to enjoy him forever. We don't choose whether, we, whether or not we are accountable to God. We simply are. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them every blessing they could ever want. He gave them purpose. He gave them meaning. He gave them a real relationship with him. He also gave them boundaries and a command not to eat of the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave them a blessing if they obeyed it, and he gave them a curse if they would not. It's the same structure that we find here in verses 26 and verse, through verses 28 of Deuteronomy 11. Moses speaks to the people and says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now immediately as we read this, I think our attention goes to the blessing and the curse. But we need to look beyond that to see that they are in fact the function of something deeper happening here. This, these words are really getting at the relationship that God means for his creatures to have with him. He intends for his creatures to live and to thrive. His commands to them are a function of that. They are good. They tell us how to live and how to thrive. They keep us from death. They, to throw these commands off, to dismiss them, is to treat obedience to God as something that is optional, and it is to throw away life for death. To, to throw off these commands is to treat the Lord himself not as God, but as a hindrance to our true happiness. God created us to reflect his glory, and as such, he expects us to reflect his faithfulness to us and our own faithfulness to him. To honor God and to live in faithfulness to him is the way of life. To fail to honor God as such, as Moses shows us, is the way of death. Obedience is not optional, friends. We don't get to decide if God will be God. What we must decide is whether or not we will honor him and receive the blessing of his grace, or whether we will disobey him and receive the curse. Will we listen to Moses' appeal to obey, or will we harden our hearts and receive the consequences? This is a bigger issue than just Israel following the commands of the law. This is a human issue. In Romans 6, 23, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's just what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, that if they disobeyed his rule and took of the fruit, dying they would die. And so they did. And the consequences of their sin were greater than just their own lives. They actually affect us. Adam's sin became Adam's curse, a curse which we have all inherited. And that brings us to consider our second point, that while obedience to God is not optional, in our fallen state, because of sin, obedience to God is something that is not possible for us. This passage is about obedience. It's about reflecting God's faithfulness to him and our own faithfulness. Ultimately, it's about commitment. One of my old professors, Stephen Wellham, points out, I think he puts it well when he says that as we look across scripture, we see that God initiates covenant relationships with his creatures, and he is always the faithful partner, true to his own nature and promises. Now, that's, that's a really important observation because it makes two points to us. First, it shows us that God is always faithful to his promises. And second, it shows us that God calls his creatures to reflect that same faithfulness to him. 
So as Moses is here standing in front of the people and very clearly laying out to them this blessing and this curse, he talks to them how this talks to them about how this is a commitment for the people today, and he talks about how this is going to be a commitment to, for them in the future. Notice in verse 29, Moses talks about how when Israel enters the land, after they take possession of it, they are to go to this place in Shechem, between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and there they are to stand as one people on either of the mountains, laying out the blessing, the covenant, and the commandments of the law, and reciting the blessings and the curses that Moses is going to give them later on in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Now, when we were doing our study of Joshua, we actually got to witness the people do that. In Joshua 8, the people go to this place. They stand on either of the mountains. Joshua makes an altar. He writes the law on it, and the people stand on these two mountains, and they commit themselves to the Lord. It is a significant moment in the, in the life of Israel. It's hard for us as you read this because we don't know where Mount Gabal is. We don't know where Ebal is. We don't know where Gerizim is, at least not in our own. It's hard to conceive of this. It's not like he said, stand in Plymouth and then stand in Sheboygan Falls and then recite these things. These are hard for us to conceive of. So beyond just seeing the place itself, we need to see the significance really of what's happening there. As we see Moses appealing to the people, we see that we need to understand that the commands of the law were not a means for Israel to get the promised land. They were, in fact, a way of life for them, a way to instruct them how to live in a right relationship with God in response to his gracious faithfulness to him. The problem, as we all know, is that in the end, Israel was unable to keep those commands, even though later they will do this. They will listen to this, and they will stand on the mountains, and they will say, blessed are we if we keep it, and cursed are we if we do not. They could not keep it in the end. In the end, just like Adam, they fell into disobedience, and so the effect of the curse fell on them. God does not lay conditions on us that are beyond what we are capable of doing. Okay? I was hoping I was going to get some strange looks. Nobody looked up from that. God does not require you to do anything beyond what you are able to do. That would not be just. It is not as if God has commanded you to sprout wings and fly. And God has not commanded you to grow gills and swim. What God has called you to do, to put it very simply, is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what God has commanded us to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, Moses says to the people, for this commandment, this commandments that he's talking about right here, these commandments that I command you today, it is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who would ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your heart. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God, everything that he commands us, is something that is within the capacity of any man or woman to do. The problem is not with the command. The problem is within us, within our very heart. Our hearts are corrupt. They are dead. 
so dead that even while we may agree that the law and its commands are good, we have this corruption within us so that we are enslaved to sin and its desires. We are held under its curse. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God so that even when we may do what God commands, those good works are always tainted with a corruption of the heart, a blindness of the mind, and a crookedness of our own desires. I was, I was in the gym this week. I finally started back to working out. And uh, I was sitting, working out under the speaker, and this song came on by a guy named David Kushner called Daylight. I'm, most If you're on social media, I know you've heard it. And I was listening to it because I've only ever heard snippets of it. I was listening to the whole song because I had no choice. It was, I was underneath it. And, and he, he said, it struck me as he was, I was listening to him sing. Listen to what he says. This is what he says. He's telling myself I won't go there. Oh, but I know that I won't care. Trying to wash away all the blood I've spilled. This lust is a burden that we both share. Two sinners can't atone from a lone prayer. Souls tied, intertwined by our pride and guilt. There's darkness in the distance from the way that I've been living. But I know that I can't resist it. Oh, I love it and I hate it at the same time. You and I drink the poison from the same vine. Oh, I love it and I hate it at the same time. Hiding all of our sins from the daylight. Running from the daylight. And that he contests, that's the chorus there. It's not a Christian song. I'm not recommending it to you. But gosh, as I listened to him, as I heard him sing, I thought, man, he's got it. That is what it's like to be captured in Adam's curse. The very curse that Moses is warning the people about here. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 7 as he describes how sin produced death in him, though the law of the Lord is good. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man indeed. Who hasn't felt that? Who hasn't felt the impossibility of righteousness in our own efforts? Whenever we desire to do right, evil lies close at hand. So it is not that God has demanded something of us that is too great, but it is that apart from the grace of God, sin's hold on us is too strong. It pollutes us and it curses us. So while obedience to God is not optional, in our fallen state, obedience to God is not possible. But there is good news. There is great news, friends, because God is faithful to save the faithless. God has an answer for wretched sinners. Listen to the rest of what Paul says in Romans 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the answer. God has a plan to save the faithless. 
Despite their sin, despite the curse, God had a plan to remove their weakness from them by giving us a faithful Savior, a new and better Adam who makes sinners righteous. The Old Covenant, with its commands, played an important role in that plan. It leads us ultimately to Christ. You see, there is a tension in the biblical storyline which grows and grows and grows. As soon as we enter it from, from Genesis 1 and meet Genesis 3.15, from that moment on, we are looking for someone who is going to deliver us. And it grows and grows and grows because, as Stephen Wellen points out, that as we move from Noah to Abraham to Israel and David and his sons, we see that God demands perfect obedience but this is an obedience which each of these biblical heroes fails to deliver on. Noah gets drunk off his own grapes. Abraham lies to Pharaoh about his wife. He's telling her, oh, I just, yeah, go ahead. No, it's his wife. Israel, can we even begin to list all the sins of Jacob? David is a man of blood. David's sons split the kingdom. But in their failure, the story of the Bible tells us about God's gracious work to overcome each and over those. It leads us ultimately to the Son who perfectly keeps the covenant in his life and his death. So it is against the backdrop of faithlessness that the faithfulness of God stands brilliant to us in Jesus Christ. He is that obedient covenant partner who succeeds where Adam, our forefather, failed. Moses told the people, that they, when they entered the land, this wasn't just a, oh, say these things, and when you get the land, you can move on. No, he tells them to reaffirm this covenant with its blessings and its curses in a very specific place. And he tells them to do that in Shechem. Now, how many of you know the significance of Shechem? I'm not seeing any hands. Shechem is the place between these two mountains. And Moses gives them very, very specific directions and landmarks so they can find it, which is why, as we're reading this, we're thinking, what, where is he talking about? If you follow this on a map, it leads you to a very specific place called the Oaks of Morah. Why, why is that here? Why here? Why do we need to know about this? Well, friends, this is the same place where Abram had come when God called him out of the land of his fathers, promising him that he would receive a land and an inheritance here for his offspring. And it was here that Abram came, first came into the land and camped and met with the Lord. In reaffirming their covenant to the Lord in this place, Israel was not just saying something about the future. They were confirming something about God's gracious faithfulness to bring them to that point. Abram came into this land without a son. Yeah, he had, he had his wife, he had his servants, but they were small. And now his descendants are standing in the exact same place, millions strong, just as the Lord had promised. Considering that God's covenant with Abraham was meant ultimately to look to a future offspring, to a son who would justify his people through his obedience and secure salvation for his people to be received by faith. It's laid out before us by Paul in Galatians 3. We can begin to trace the storyline of God's work of redemption through, even through Mount Ebal and Gerizim to Mount Zion. 
In John 3.16, Jesus witnesses to us of the sort of love that God has poured out on the undeserving through himself. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That's the language of the curse. Okay, death. But have eternal life. That's the language of the blessing. You see how God has done what Israel could not? It's his faithfulness. He sent his son to be that faithful one so that the curse would not fall on those who believe in him, but they would receive the blessing. So you can see how Deuteronomy 11, as strange as this might have sounded when I started reading it to you, actually prepares us to receive the blessing of the gospel of God's grace in the work of Jesus. Left to ourselves, the only thing we can hope to receive from a passage like this is the curse. But because God's faithfulness was provided for us, we can have the blessing. We may not, in our own ability, be able to match the holy standard of God, but Christ can. And it's through his perfect obedience, through his unique standing as that promised offspring, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, that Jesus is able to fulfill that faithful requirement for us. So he is able to secure the salvation for us that is not earned by us, but which is freely given to us by God's grace. This morning we read from Revelation 21, in the, if you missed the devotional time, we were, we were reading in there and we were reading about how God gives water water of eternal life without cost to us. It is that grace. Moses knew as he stood in front of the people and held out this blessing and this curse to them that though they struggled while they strived to be faithful, in the end they would prove to be faithless. It's something we can all resonate with. The law can't free us from our sin. If anything, it only serves to increase the sin because it makes God's requirements known to us. And suddenly we realize just how far short we fall of it. But Christ has come to deliver his people from the curse of the law. He takes our sin on himself and he gives us his righteousness so that now by faith we can enter and live in a right relationship with God. Friends, I would be remiss not to ask you this morning, have you received that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Or are you still striving in your own faithful, in your own to be faithful and earn yourself? This is why the New Testament authors call Jesus the new and better Adam. Because while the first Adam failed to be a faithful covenant partner, Jesus, the second Adam, prevailed in his obedience by humbling himself even to the point of dying on a cross and has therefore been exalted by God the Father in his resurrection as Lord and Christ, Philippians 2. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The beauty of the gospel is that despite how we have sinned so grossly against God's good commands, despite how we have violated his holiness with our sins, God has shown mercy and grace to us in his Son. He has delivered on the promise. And this is the reason why you and I can have such confidence to know that our salvation is safe and secure if we are in Christ. Not because, God does not, not because we think that God finds us acceptable because we've done this or because we haven't done that, 
but rather we know that because we, he finds us acceptable because when he looks on a man or on a woman or on a child who has put their faith in Christ, he sees a son, he sees his daughter, he sees his treasured possession because he sees the righteousness of Christ in them. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that in spite of the fact that in our own strength, we cannot offer God the faithfulness that he deserves because of Christ we have a righteousness that is not our own, and we begin through faith in the work of the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of righteousness in our own lives. And that's the last point that I want to explore with you this morning. The obedience of Christ's people, understand this, the obedience of Christ's people is the fruit of Christ's work for them. It is God working in us that now equips us to do what we could not do before, to hunger and thirst for righteousness to seek first the kingdom of God, to love God with our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Moses makes a strong point to the people of Israel that keeping the commands of the law was not a way for them to earn God's favor, but rather it was meant to be the way that they lived with God in the grace that he was giving them. The commands of God are light and they are life. But as we see in the very, very clearly in the example of Israel, that while the commands of God make God's righteousness known to us, they cannot in the end empower us to keep them. And that is where the work of Christ to fulfill the demands of the law, to remove the curse and secure a righteousness for us matters so much. So in Christ, we receive a new covenant, a covenant that stands on his blood. It is not like the old one, we are told in Jeremiah 31, which was broken over and over and over again because it is not written on stone but on the hearts of God's people. This new covenant established in the blood of Christ is a covenant that stands forever on the completed work of Christ. And, the work, and that work continues in God's people to equip us to live with new hearts equipped with the Holy Spirit. God's expectation of obedience is still there. But those works of obedience that God commands now stand as evidence by which we are shown that we are in Christ. Christians do not earn their way into God's favor through their obedience. And praise God for that because we still fall short. Now we live striving to please our Heavenly Father in the grace that he gives. Our obedience to God is a fruit of the work of Christ for us. It is something that identifies us. It shows us that we have indeed been united to him by faith to live and walk in the newness of his life as a new creation. God calls us to live in a manner worthy of his son, full of confidence and assurance that all who come to Christ, he will most certainly not cast out. The blessing and the curse of the law plays a key role in showing us God's purpose for his creation, that he means for his faithfulness and his glory to be reflected in the way we live. But it also teaches us to consider that while we fall well short of that standard, God has shown his faithfulness to us by saving us from the curse and by giving us light and life in Christ. As we prepare for a new year, I think it's important for us to consider how God has shown his great faithfulness to us in spite of our faithlessness. We can know with confidence that even while we face the unknown of a new year, that our God is with us, that he will not forsake us, and that we are secure in his Son, 
who has conquered for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have access to this book. In many ways, Father, the book of Deuteronomy is daunting because it lists commands for us and it calls us to an obedience that in the end we know we cannot keep. But Father, thank you for the way that you have shown us through Christ your great work of redemption. That in the end, your plan was not to have people try to earn your way to you, but rather it was to trust you and to entrust themselves to the Savior that you have provided, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here we stand, Father, at the end of a year and at the beginning of another one. And while from our own perspective, it really is just nothing but the changing of numbers at the end of a dateline, then again, Father, it is something we can look at with, with hope because we know that you are faithful, that you remain faithful even when we are faithless, for you will not deny yourself. And so, Father, I pray that whatever goes on this, this year, that our hearts would be fixed on you, that Christ would be our sure and steady anchor in all things, that we would live by faith and not by sight, that we would trust that just as you have been faithful in all of history, that you will be faithful for the future. And Father, I pray that equipped with that, we would live as victors and conquerors in the victory of Christ, and that he would be exalted as we await his return. I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.